This episode of the Good Lion Podcast is brought to you by CGN and the upcoming Calvary Global Network International Conference. Hi, friends. Brian Broderson here, and I want to let you know about the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference coming up here at Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, June 25th through the 28th. Our theme this year is the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And oh, how we need the Spirit of God uh, to be upon us in these days. So we're going to be digging down into that great text from Isaiah 61. We're going to be looking at all the different facets of it. we got a number of great voices that are going to be speaking to us. We're going to have times of prayer and worship and lots of fellowship and enjoying meals together and all kinds of wonderful things. So if you would like to be part of this conference coming up in June, uh, please get signed up today. You can do that at conference.calvarychapel.com. Once again, that is the CGN International Pastors and Leaders Conference, June 25th through the 28th. Hope to see you there. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Good Lion Podcast. I am Aaron Salvato, and I'm here with my friend, Michael Bowles. How's it going, man? Good. Good to be here. It's good to have you back. This is your second time on the show. And so you are now a part of a very special club of Good Lion two-timers. Oh, yeah. I feel honored to be back. Yeah. It's really good to have you, man. I was excited when we were talking. You, you've you been on my list of guys to contact to get back on the show. And when we were chatting about what we were going to talk about, you came at me with this this idea and this concept that I actually had not heard of before, which was the concept of the wisdom warrior. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're all about it. That's been your <laughs> subject of focus lately. You just wrote this big paper. Uh, you just did a, a little presentation on it, correct? Yeah. So Break that down, like um, get, help he, people understand. Well, actually, also, can you just explain what you're doing right now? Because it's been a while since you were on the show, and I think your situation has changed, correct? You're, you're doing slightly different things than you were doing before. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of things. So still a student at Western Seminary. So Same. I'm, yeah, we got that in common. <laughs> so I'm getting my THM in the process of doing that, doing work on that. I work for a gospel-centered tra transitional housing provider called Absolute Ministries, mm. where we assist men and women coming out of rehab and just walking alongside them like, hey, what does it look like to follow Jesus in your vocation and finances and getting plugged into local church? So um, that's it. been incredible. It's been super fun. Mm. So that's what I do a majority of my time throughout the week. And then I also teach a Bible stuff at the Teen Challenge Ministry Institute yeah. in Los Angeles. I love that you're doing that. And then recently I became Gary Brashears. Maybe you've heard of him. <laughs> um, yes. So I'm his TA this semester helping him with four of his classes. So that's been fun. That's awesome. I know that he, that guy's doing so much. So I'm really glad that he's getting some good help and I can't think of a better person to to help him with what you're to, with what you're doing than than you you know that's that's fantastic Thanks. man and uh, now you're going to be the one grading my papers is that correct that is correct fantastic. uh he is actually going over all of my com comments and feedback <laughs> so which actually adds a little more stress to me because i'm like i have to be 110 percent right oh my gosh because gary is gonna come over my comments gonna be and double checking it all <laughs> Yeah, double checking it. That's fantastic. No, but he's sweet. It's it's been fun. That's awesome, man. 
Well, I'm glad you're here. This is a show where we love to dive into culture. We also love to dive into theology and see where those two things intersect. And this is going to be a pretty pretty theology-heavy episode, I think, but I'd love to figure out how it relates to a culture. So, yeah, why don't we just dive right in to the concept? Michael, the wisdom warrior, <laughs> what is that concept? Like, how? Well, let me ask you this first. How did that concept get on your radar? Because I had never heard it before until I saw it pop up sure. in a Bible Project podcast. Yeah, a, a friend of mine, Aaron Shaw, we were taking a class on Ecclesiastes together at Western, and we were just chatting through. We had to write this big paper, and he introduced me to the idea of wisdom warrior. He actually introduced me to an article by Nicholas Perrin, which kind of opened up what I thought was potentially wisdom warrior in the narrative frame of Ecclesiastes. It sounds weird, but <laughs> essentially I wrote this long paper and presented it at this regional academic conference. So cool. But it just captured me because I seeing this theme, this motif of a wisdom warrior in the Old Testament, and then seeing how Jesus is like, the full embodiment of wisdom and seeing how he leads with wisdom in the New Testament and all of the implications that that means for me now. And mind you, exile is definitely a theme that like, you know, we can't have this wisdom warrior without exile, hmm. but it, it helps me think through like, how, how do I navigate leading my wife, leading my family, leading a, you know, helping lead on an elder team at church what does that mean leading with wisdom? And so yeah. this seemed like something, you know, definitely nerdy Bible, like super cool, but it also had great implications for just practical living as an apprentice of Jesus. That's great. So it, it, it sounds like it's a motif, like it's a recurring theme that happens, which yeah. we know that the Bible project and Tim Mackey specifically like adores <laughs> motifs. Yeah. Um, how would you explain it to somebody? Cause I'm, I'm yeah. guessing most people are like me where it's not a concept that they hear a lot. Their senior pastor at their church is probably not talking about the wisdom warrior motif in their sermon. So how would you explain the concept to someone who's never heard it before? Sure. And the Bible project, they have a podcast actually that's titled exile and the wisdom warrior where Tim quotes and refers to this guy, Daniel Smith, Smith Christopher. Hmm. And he's actually the one, this one, as far as I know, that's really crafted this profile of a wisdom warrior and trace this image throughout the Bible. So he goes on to explain that the wisdom warrior is defined in Proverbs. So Proverbs 17, 27, the wisdom warrior is calm and self-restrained later on in Proverbs seeks to end conflict mm. before it begins mm. will not return evil for evil but seek the welfare of even his enemies appears in the eyes of the dominant to be weak and ineffectual even in his apparent weakness he's protected by God mm. so that's kind of how he in Proverbs defines like the profile of a wisdom warrior I see well, I love that <laughs> already. That sounds very much in line with, I mean, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of the game, but that sounds very in line with Jesus. <laughs> it sounds very in line yeah. with who he is and, and how he presented himself. And that's a concept that I've used a lot here on this show and just in my own work is, you know, what I've labeled the way of the peacemaker. 
you know, and this idea of yeah. somebody who is fighting, they're engaging in the battles of the culture and in the battles of life, but they have a different goal in mind. It's not conquest. It's not utter annihilation of their enemy, but it's actually how can I how can I redeem this situation? How can I actually fight for peace? I, so I, I love that you wanted to dive into the concept and your excitement has actually gotten me excited about the uh, <laughs> the concept. I, I read your paper, thought it was great. Let, let's, let's continue to kind of help people flesh this out. Can you give examples of maybe characters yeah. in the Old Testament that would fit this motif? Yeah. So the prophet Jeremiah, he offers a peace ethic from a distance, right? For those who are in exile in Babylon. So classic, famous chapter that everyone, you know, most Christians know, Jeremiah 29, 11. Before that, in verse 7, the prophet says to the exiles, seek the shalom, the peace of the city where you find yourselves. And in doing so, you will find shalom, peace. And I can only imagine that this is not the message most wanted to hear in exile because of the previous chapter. The prophet Hananiah offers a completely opposite ethic than Jeremiah in that God was going to break the yoke of Babylon in two years, stirring up the dreams of this like successful uh, revolt. So this is a matter of identity and allegiance for the exiles. So... Hananiah's prophetic message is very patriotic with the bold remark about, you know, the vessels of the Lord's house being returned to the temple along with the king and all the exiles from Judah. But Daniel is another example, and he offers a very like different ethic of this kind of wisdom warrior, nonviolent resistance. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I love the point that you're getting at there because I think what Israel went through in their exile would, Mm -hmm. it just reminds me of the culture today and and the culture wars and how, you know, let's just use the, for example, in in America here, you have essentially, it's more, it's more complex than this, but essentially you've got two sides politically of the country and both look at what each side is doing. And they're just kind of bemoaning like, Oh, they, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, each side views the other one and says, like, you, they've corrupted, you know, what the country is supposed to be. And look at all the the ruin that we see. Look at all these horrible things happening because of this party or because of that party. And there's this desire, right, to overthrow the other party and to defeat the other party so that we can restore, you know, the vision of what we believe the good life mm-hmm. should be. And it reminds me of, you know, Psalm 137, you know, after the exile of Babylon or the exile to Babylon, you've got the the psalmist in that in that psalm is just lamenting about the fall of Jerusalem. And, and he's saying, you know, basically it's this psalm where he wants vengeance. And it's like, Lord, you know, I just wish that you would take their children and dash their infants heads against the rocks. And it's this very like violent prayer that reveals, I think, just the heart of of humanity mm-hmm. where it's like when we are wronged when we are conquered when we are put down uh, we want vengeance right like we want to overthrow our enemies and so 
I think it's incredible to see that the the model that Jesus has, at least in this plan of redemption, is not actually overthrowing of enemies, but fighting for peace. Yeah, 100 percent. And God's plans are centered on the people of God primarily. Mm. And I think to your point about just the cultural climate we find ourselves, this is like Daniel, you know, the in the Old Testament, his whole thing, right? Like he offers limited cooperation as he embodies the peace ethic really of Jeremiah, this nonviolent resistance, essentially saying like the nation state or empire is not the center of the universe. Yeah, break break that down too. Like break down kind of Daniel's story and and because there there you know most people listening know Daniel's story, but I think it would just be good to flesh out exactly how it plays out the way that you're saying. Yeah. So Daniel and his three friends they go into exile and they essentially take on a new identity. They're part of you know their their identity quickly conforms to that of Babylon in the names they receive the clothes that they start to wear even their vocation that they find themselves in and there are moments where their identity is like God's covenant people clashes with their allegiance to Babylon yeah. so one instance I'm thinking of in particular chapter one uh, was Daniel's denial to eat from the king's royal table. Mm. And all the implications that that meant at that time, the standards of the culture, sharing a meal, all that stuff. So perhaps Daniel refused because he wanted to like be free and solely in covenant with Yahweh. There's another instance when King Nebuchadnezzar erects that giant gold statue of himself and wants everyone to worship him. And Daniel and his three friends in chapter three, despite their position loyally serving in government, they subversively refuse to give allegiance to the golden image. Mm. And these are just a couple of examples of how Daniel engages in a form of nonviolent resistance. Yeah, so yeah, Daniel and his friends are these young Israelite men and they basically get, you know, in, in like there's an invasion that they're kidnapped from their homes and their family and thrust into basically like slave labor for the King, you know, to the being trained up and like put into these schools to be indoctrinated by the ways of Babylon to then be servants and advisors to the King as a father. Like that's a horrible thought. Like what if that happened to my son? What if some other country Mm -hmm. like invaded, kidnapped my son, tried to indoctrinate him and turn him, mold him into the image of this other society. And I think what you're getting at is like, all of our heroic stories of America and just the West would point to the idea of like, if that happened, it would be like, how can I subversively try to find a way to overthrow the King of Babylon? How can I find a way to murder the King of Babylon and restore justice and order through violence, through the sword? But the, the picture of Daniel is actually, how can I fight evil through, through wisdom? Um, that's what I'm getting mm-hmm. from what you're saying. So it's yeah. like, yeah, hundred percent him refusing to eat that food is it's, he's fighting back, but he's doing it not through poisoning the King's food. <laughs> he's, he's doing it through refusing to corrupt the standard that God has given him. And then also not bowing down to that giant egotistical statue that uh, Nebuchadnezzar puts up. It would have been so easy to just do that. And then in your mind, you know, be like, I'm sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I repent. But, but Daniel stands up for what's right. 
So I, I think that's 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 beautiful and that's so applicable, you know, to today's mm-hmm. situation. And, and we'll we'll get into that more in the episode. But that's yeah, I think I think you're you're doing a good job laying this out. Now, now let me ask you this: Why does the trope include warrior? Because I think when we have the trope of the wise man, you know, it's it's kind of peaceful. Like though the wise man in most stories, yeah. they're not there to fight the monster or the boss. You know, they're they're there to just give guidance to the the protagonist. Like, you know, hey, yeah. you know, the old wise man use the fire scroll to defeat the ice king. Which that's that's actually pretty basic <laughs> advice. Uh, it's like yeah, no yeah. duh. Or you know, I think of Star Fox sixty four, and you know, Peppy is the wise. Oh uh, yeah, old rabbit. You know, do a barrel roll. You're becoming more like your father. You know, um, <laughs> sorry, I'm a nerd. But yeah, you know what I mean. The 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 wisdom warrior trope implies that the wise man is also fighting. He's wise, but he's also yeah. a warrior. So what what does that look like? Yeah, I think it's. I mean, the Old Testament to to quote John Stillhammer, the Old Testament really shines a spotlight on the New Testament and makes sense of a lot of this like when we get Jesus and we get this like wise warrior all of all of this warrior language is used in the Old Testament like we have you have like Messiah in conflict with serpent and you have language that's used like all throughout these messianic scriptures directly mentioning like hey there's going to be this Messiah that's going to come that's going to break that's going to crush, that's going to shatter, that's going to pierce. And these, these words in the Hebrew are, are used in other, you know, instances in the Bible, like referring to like this warfare imagery. And so we have Jesus, this wise warrior who's going to wield the weapon of wisdom and is going to ultimately defeat cosmic evil through laying down his life yeah, and, and like wielding the weapon of his word, like his mouth. And, and that scene, there's a lot in that. But Jesus, you know, Paul, I think of what Paul says in the New Testament. It's the coming together of these kind of roles of wisdom and Messiah, where he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Mm-hmm. He's the full embodiment of wisdom. And we see him in his quest to defeat cosmic evil in what he accomplished through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. When you're talking through this stuff what is your definition of wisdom because i think sometimes people hear that word wisdom and they just kind of default to like just general intuition you know or just you know even like business savvy or street smarts you know like just knowing when to make the right decision that's not going to make you get taken advantage of or or killed or you know what's going to be the thing that brings you the most profit you know how can you be a shrewd wise businessman so when we're working through this framework like what exactly are you saying when you use the term wisdom yeah and i wrote a paper that perhaps you know we could include on the show notes that yeah if, if nothing to. else will help people fall asleep at night. <laughs> uh, but it's essentially kind of talking about Messiah 
in conflict with monsters in the Bible, which really <laughs> trace kind of this sounds really cool. Um, sounds epic. It's like catchy click clickbait title. <laughs> uh, but it looks at this warfare imagery of where Messiah is in conflict with serpent, Leviathan, the four beasts of Daniel seven, all of that. But I think when I think of wisdom, Jesus isn't going to dispel the foreign powers of Palestine with brute military force. He's going to use wisdom or the word from his mouth as his weapon. Mm. So like throughout Jesus's life, he was filled with wisdom. He grew in wisdom. So one might say that part of becoming kind of like stepping into Messiah, this messianic calling that Israel's sagely tradition informs us, Jesus is going to wield the weapon of wisdom in exemplifying the peace ethic of Jeremiah, this nonviolent resistance in the, in the face of self-proclaimed state power or empire. But his antagonist wasn't like political, right? Like it wasn't nationalistic. It wasn't empire. It was, even though perhaps maybe the Pharisees or Romans like thought it was, yeah. but it was this cosmic universal evil that goes back to the garden in Genesis 3.15. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually what I want. Some follow-up questions I wanted to ask you was, you know, what what is the battle of the wisdom warrior? And if we're using Jesus as the ultimate wisdom warrior, let me ask you, like, what is his battle, and who are his enemies? Yeah, I think the battle is against the serpent, which is identified later in the New Testament as Satan, who embodies he's this chaos figure hmm. or this chaos monster that embodies cosmic evil. So Jesus is going to be victorious over serpent, this monster, this cosmic embodiment of evil by laying down his life only to take it up again, as John says. And this is so that those like you, you and me and perhaps the listeners who hear his voice and follow him, that we're given the gift of eternal life. So the cross is really the climax where Jesus is, humiliated and he lays down his life self-sacrificially and it's going to be consummated when Jesus comes again. I mean, think about he's going to, you know, there's like this insane imagery of him coming again where he's on a white horse. He's got King of Kings, Lord of Lords tattooed on his thighs. And I always joke with my tattoo artist, like John, (laughs) what if Jesus is waiting for you to die so that you can tattoo King of Kings and Lord of Lords? on his thighs. Wow. What, a, and he's what just an like, honor that would an be. Idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but in that imagery in Revelation 19, he's wielding the word from his mouth and it's a sword coming mm. out of his mouth. It's pretty gnarly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I think, I think it's so important to keep that battle in our, in the forefront of our mind. Like the idea that there is this cosmic war against, I, I love, you know, how you and other theologians put it, the chaos monster, right? It, mm-hmm. This idea that the demonic is this dark, destructive force that is out to bring chaos. And I think that's embodied in, you know, the the biblical quote of, you know, what is what does he do? He he lies, he kills, he destroys. That's the definition of chaos. It's, it's the opposite of shalom yeah. and peace. And so, you know, just this Sunday, my, my pastor was going through Corinthians and he was talking about that verse where it's talking about how we can, 
you know, come to the table of the Lord, but if we do it in an improper way, we're actually fellowshipping with demons. And and really, he, it was getting at sin. Like, participating in sin is the opposite of communion, coming to the table of the Lord. It's it's sitting at the table of the enemy and the demonic and participating, mm-hmm. um, you know. And, and so, yeah. yeah, just just this reminder that, like, we are in this battle for souls and for authority that has been going on since before this planet even existed. The interesting thing to me is this model Jesus gives us that wisdom is a better tactic than violence, which is like so the opposite of how our world works. Like I was joking with our Good Lion School discipleship guys last night when we were talking about how, you know, when it comes to like culture, violence is always the answer. Loving your enemies is not usually the answer. Like when you're playing Mario, there's no button to like hug a Goomba. There's only a button to like jump really high in the air <laughs> and crush a Goomba or like murder a Koopa and like use his body to like murder other things. So, uh, you know, that's just getting super deep into Mario logic there. But I, I think it's crazy that even when Jesus is in the wilderness and he's confronted by Satan in the wilderness, yeah. Jesus fights that battle with wisdom. You know what I mean? Like, yep. he, I mean, he would have every right to just like call on his divine powers and shoot like some kind of little heavenly Kamehameha, you know, at Satan to <laughs> obliterate him, <laughs> which would, would have been super rad. Like I would just, part of me just wishes like we got one scene in scripture where Jesus like used force lightning or something. I'm just throwing out all the the pop culture violence references yeah, here. But, but no, Jesus, you know, Satan tempts him. Uh, you know, Jesus turned the rocks into bread and Jesus uses wisdom. You know, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I, I just find that incredible that Jesus, even when he's privately alone in the wilderness, uses wisdom rather than violence. I mean, what do you think about that? Like, wh- why do you think wisdom is a better tactic than violence the way Jesus lays it out for us? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, my mind is thinking of like eschatological views, right? Hmm. I think yeah. a lot of the Puritans and everyone, you know, a lot of those that were coming over to, you know, this continent, a lot of them were post-millennial. Like they had this idea that like, that we're going to make this a Christian nation. And they fumbled through how they actually applied that. And there's horrendous injustice and oppression that are done to the natives. And I mean, the list goes on. Yeah. And so I think there's this idea that like Jesus provides this way forward. I mean, you mentioned the temptation. He uses the word. I mean, he uses, he wields the weapon of his mouth and he's got this bigger picture like in view that like we get to experience and I'm re- I'm revealing my eschatological cards here, but there's this idea of like the already not yet. So yeah. we get glimpses of God's kingdom, like heaven coming to earth. But we still experience this chaos monster, as you were talking about. Like, what is a monster? A monster is something that brings disorder or chaos to God's created world, yeah. to creation and to humans. Mm. So, I mean, think about Egypt was a type of monster. Pharaoh mm. Mm. was a type of monster. Nebuchadnezzar was a type of monster. Antiochus was a type of monster. And so we have this example of this it's like this radical doubt is what daniel smith christopher and even tim talk about in the podcast where it's like yeah i doubt that empire is going to be the solution here but it's this idea that like jesus is coming back Mm. and 
that he's heaven's going to fully invade the earth and he's going to be fully king. Yeah. And it's going to be this restoration of the garden and better because we're not going to have capacity to, to sin. And mm. yeah, I don't know. I'm just kind of rambling here. But. No, man. I mean, you're, you're throwing out one of my favorite things. I've talked about it on the show, but the idea of inaugurated eschatology, that's that's that, yep. that's my primary th- uh, eschatological position. I, I'm, you know, practically I'm more on the historic pre-mill side of things. I, I actually yep. have been doing a lot of research and I feel like I have the least in common with post post millennial guys. Yeah, because I feel like their vision for how the kingdom comes to earth is so different. And it, it so involves the use of political power and political force and even violence in, in some cases. And and, mm-hmm. and to me, I just don't see that in scripture and I don't see that in, reflected in and who Jesus is. And I, I don't think that that means, because this is the accusation that gets thrown out, is that guys like us, you know, who lean towards nonviolent resistance will just sit back and let any evil happen. And I don't think that's the case. If we have ways that we can stop evil, you know, without resorting to violence. Let's just be practical. Like, there's always a super violent solution that you could take to any problem. Like, you could literally say, like, <laughs> oh, my neighbors yeah. are causing all these problems. I'm going to burn their house down. You know, and then the problem will yeah. be gone. Well, then you've got other problems. Like, now you're going to jail for burning your neighbor's house <laughs> <Yeah>. down. Um, <laughs> a lot of people think that violence and force are the answer. And to me, I just don't see that laid out. I, I see Jesus giving us this new way of living uh, where essentially by resisting evil nonviolently, and that doesn't mean pacifism. Like this is what what I've heard from Gary. You know, when we think of pacifism, it's like this idea of being passive, you know, passiveism, where it's like, oh, I'm just going to sit back and let evil happen. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about resisting evil nonviolently, and what that means is we're actually willing to disadvantage ourselves and lay down our own lives for the sake of the truth. And I think there's something powerful about that because when you see someone fight for what they believe in to the point where they're willing to die for it, but they're not willing mm-hmm. to kill somebody for it, there's something so powerful about that that makes me want to go like, man, what does that person believe? Like, I should maybe take what they're taking seriously because they, they – like. You know what I mean? Like I think of the Christian martyrs yeah. who were willing to be burned at the stake but didn't organize these task teams to like overthrow their oppressors and, you know, burn them on the stake or nail them to the cross. And think about all of the soldiers and guards in those situations that came to Christ by the example of the prisoners who were willing to go to death for the sake of the gospel. I'm Now I'm rambling, but uh, I, I'm just saying yeah. that seems to be the vision that we're given from Jesus and from church history. Yeah, and it's just sad. I mean, I think that it's difficult for us in this like kind of modern Western democratic, you know, we, we this is the government that we exist in, this Western democratic government. And it's hard for us because we have this vo- vocabulary of these Christian terms that are like very intermixed. Mm. But I don't think it's like an excuse to be fully committed to 
like whatever government we live under. But I think instead, Christians, we should follow subversive, nonviolent, you know, this ethic of peace like Daniel, like Jesus. And it's it's sad to think like now, I mean, you like who's a who's an example of someone who's kind of embodied this nonviolent resistance. I think in our contemporary culture, we have nonviolent, you know, peaceful figures who bring about significant change. I think of Gandhi, Mandela, Mother Teresa, Cesar Chavez, Martin Luther King Jr. And it's sad that there's not more like Christian, more Christians kind of occupying this like way of thinking of like embodying this, like kind of wielding the weapon of wisdom, nonviolence, nonviolent resistance. Yeah. We're, we're not given as Christians here in America, there's no official like framework or option we're given. Like there, there's not a, there's not any political party that we can see that is making nonviolent resistance a part of their, their (laughs) whole ethic, you know, and that goes for the left and the right because we see you know and it's not usually coming from the edict of you know whoever's at the top but we see practically on both sides there have been violent resistance and riots and rallies and you know uprisings and attempts at revolution and overthrowing the other side and a lot of times when they happen the people in the authority on those sides downplay it you know if they're on the the left they'll say you know, riots are the language of the unheard. And if they're on the right, they'll be like, well, you know, I can understand why they try to storm the Capitol because this, this and this and we're oppressed. And, you know, it's, it's both sides, which it, it's funny because we, we talk about we talk about critical theory and Marxism. And usually it's framed as a, a leftist thing, you know, all about framing things as, you know, oh, we're the oppressed and the other side is the oppressors. And the thing that's funny to me is I look at the right and they do the same thing. The, the right is constantly saying we're oppressed by the, the liberal elites in culture, right? Mm-hmm. So to me, I mean, when you have both sides saying we are oppressed, they are the oppressors, and the only way to defeat them is to overthrow them through revolution, right? That's the framework of the world. And so that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Uh, yeah. I, the, 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 the political parties of the world do not give us a Christ-like framework what this looks like you know yeah and i think if it, it's this idea of radical doubt i mean jesus is the one to open the way back home right mm-hmm. i mean this idea of that we are in this kind of age of exile and this whole theme is super core to us even understanding the wisdom warrior and wielding the weapon of wisdom but no matter what political side you find yourself if if i'm if i'm putting my hope in a political party i am getting actually sold a bootleg sellout copy or wannabe of the kingdom of god my hope should be in jesus's you know the kingdom of god and i should be pursuing the kingdom of god and i think like you and i have chatted about it offers this this way forward that kind of cuts through perhaps the middle where maybe both sides, I don't know. I'm kind of politically disinterested, but maybe you could be like, oh, the right kind of has this kingdom of God aspect or the left does. Regardless, it's like being consumed with apprenticing Jesus and being about his kingdom, I think cuts right through the middle of, I don't know, all of it. <laughs> yeah. 
No, totally. And I think like we're talking about very big things right now. We're talking about the systemic problems that we see with the brokenness of the world. And the thing I always come back to is like for how much attention we give the big systemic problems, how many of us can say that we personally contributed to fixing any of those problems by ranting about whatever on Facebook or about, you know, debating things on social media? But when I think about my life, like where have I actually contributed to making positive change for the kingdom of God? It was through individual people that God called me to minister to. And, and individual people with various different mm. viewpoints than mine and, and various different temperaments than mine and various different worldviews than mine, but through individually trying to reach them with the love and the grace of Jesus, I've seen change yeah. happen. So let's take a minute to focus on Jesus. You know, you've labeled him as the the messianic wisdom warrior, and you've tried to point out that, like, you know, we've got these ideas of what the Messiah looks like. You know, the Messiah as king. We all know that one. Yeah. But Messiah is wisdom warrior, like somebody who's actually fighting the forces of darkness, not with the sword, but through wisdom. So I'm, I'm trying to think of stories like would, would maybe the woman caught in adultery. Is that a story that would fit the wisdom warrior framework? Because he's thrown into this very tense situation where there's this woman caught in adultery and she's thrown at his feet and there's a crowd surrounding him. And it's like the the Pharisees are out for blood. You know, they're they're out for this woman's head, basically. And, and the way that Jesus combats it is. He, you know, he sits down, draws in the sand. We don't know what he's writing. Maybe it was some of the sins of the, the Pharisees. Who knows? But yeah, I mean, he says, any of you who's without sin, let you be the first one to throw the stone. And then everyone gets all bummed out and walks away because they're realizing like, oh, he's right. We're hypocrites. Is, is that kind of an example of the wisdom warrior motif through the actions of Jesus? Yeah, I think there's a ton of examples where Jesus clashes with Pharisees, Sadducees, and the idea there in all of those instances is their hopes for kind of restoring the land are shattered when mm. it's like Jesus is pictured as like this terrorist figure. I mean, I think of my <laughs> yeah. mind goes to the example where he's like, hey, you see that temple, that thing that's kind of like the National Monument and the White House, but also like your church. <laughs> I'm going to destroy that thing. And in three days, I'm going to raise it. And he's referring to himself. But it that's it's a very bold thing to say because I think at that yeah, time... Yeah, I forgot how inflammatory that would be. <laughs> yeah, at that time, the people were, were... They had the wrong thinking. They're like, how can we get back to power? Like, how could mm. we... How could we get things back to power? And I think Jesus offers us this invitation of really like how do we live in an Occupy a space that doesn't have our best interests at mind where maybe we don't have full power. Like Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And you know, the the reason I used the the example of the woman caught in adultery was you know, you had this situation where Jesus is in this tense, possibly violent situation where like they're literally holding stones wanting yeah. to stone this woman to death 
and and then Jesus uses like his logic and reason yep. and his words to basically disarm them and make them drop the stones. And um, to me, yeah. I mean, that just practically speaking, that seems to be what this this model is all about. It reminds me of, you know, the, the metaphor of judo, you know, because judo is a form of self-defense and it's a martial art, but it's not offensive. It's about using your opponent's strength and energy against them. Like there's this judo move called the shoulder throw where you know, your opponent's charging towards you and you, the, the judo warrior steps forward with one foot and then places the other behind them and then positions themselves to receive the opponent's weight and then wraps one arm around their neck and the other around their waist and then, you know, flips them over their shoulder and ultimately brings them to the ground with force. And the goal is not to like kill the opponent or defeat them even, but it's to subdue them and bring them under control. And I see Jesus doing that all the time. Like he lets people attack him and accuse him of things and just all sorts of, you know what I mean? Like he lets, he lets the Pharisees come at them and he does not, you know, release fireballs from heaven. Uh, He doesn't even, you know, always launch into a verbal tirade. Sometimes he does, you know, let's be honest, but, but quite often like he lets them vent their thing, you know, and then he Mm -hmm. basically uses wisdom to say, Hey, let's pause and I'm going to absorb your attack, but then I'm going to respond with some very wise insight from the Lord. And it's this place where then he's able to bring his enemies under control without overpowering them. And when I think about even like, what does that mean? Like in the judo analogy to bring someone under control, what it means is you're trying to bring someone under the authority of King Jesus and of Yahweh. Yeah, like you're, you're, you're trying to get them to the point where they're thinking about things through the lens of scripture and not just Old Testament, you know, the stuff that the Pharisees are thinking through, but the whole meta narrative of scripture, what is scripture in light of Christ? So I don't know if that's making sense, but that's, that's the stuff that's running through my head. I have a question. The way that you were describing this like judo move, I am wondering if you are the judo warrior. (laughs) Uh, Are you a judo warrior, Aaron? And I just had no idea. I wish, man, if I, if I was going to do any martial arts, it would be judo, but I am too fat and too lazy to learn judo. Maybe one day. We'll see. Maybe yeah. I'll have my son take judo and I'll join with him and we'll do it together. Just live vicariously through him. Yeah. Ex- like, like most dads in most sports, you know, let's oh, yeah. be honest. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I think in that, the example you brought up of Jesus, the stones, the Pharisees in that instance, you know, he got a good result. They, they dropped the stones. And I think for us, it's, it's good to think in this tension of like, as we're navigating and wielding the weapon of wisdom and we're not like left stranded. Like if you're a follower of Jesus, you have the indwelling of the Holy spirit. Like you are guided, you're a person that's guided by the spirit. And I think yielding the results of like conflict to God, like, yes, sometimes they may drop the stones. Sometimes Mm. they may throw the stones and (laughs) be okay with that. (laughs) Like they were going to throw it at someone else and now they've changed their target. And now they're, the stones are coming at you. Absolutely. And I think of Paul and I think it's in Philippians where he's like, guys, pray I get released, you know, but then mm. he's also like, I am content if I die. 
And I think that's this wisdom that we're embodying in this kind of age of exile. That's like, guys, pray that there's change, pray Mm. that there's change in government, even perhaps like pray that we see our societies and our cultures and our cities change, but also, okay, if that doesn't happen, because we know that there's going to come a day where Jesus is going to come back, he's going to wipe every tear and he's going to bring the justice that we're longing for, if that makes sense. Yeah, let's let's bring let's make that super practical with an example that I think everybody is familiar with, if that's okay. Because I I am judo? all no no no. Uh, it, well, <laughs> I don't know if there's judo involved in this conflict, maybe. But I'm all about getting things out of theory and into the practical world because I think if we don't if we don't yeah if we don't explore that, it's going to be really hard. Like it, it's just information, but people don't know what to actually do with it. You know, so, you know, I think, for example, like right right now in our country, there has been rumblings, which just is so disturbing to me. But I think I don't want to put my head in the sand about it. Um, I've seen rumblings over the last three years or so about people who are anticipating that eventually our country, America, could experience another civil war. And it has to do with a lot of different things. It has to do with just the general hatred, disdain, and distrust that conservatives and liberals have about one another. It has to do with tensions about things like abortion or, you know, transgenderism or sexuality and, you know, even the economy and healthcare. Like there's all these things, these different sides have opposing views about what the good life looks like. And so, uh, you know, we saw January 6th that there is a decent amount of people that believe that the way to take power is through, you know, through violence. And we've seen also, you know, through different, you know, riots and things around even systemic racism in the country. Like there are people that are frustrated and they think the answer is revolution. It's burning things down. And so there, there's all of this stuff bubbling under the surface and and. For many people, the answer tends to be violence. So, like, let's take it back to the first civil war, you know? With that, you had something that was going on in the country, which was slavery, which was embraced. It was something that most people thought this is the norm, this is okay. Even Christians, like, you have Christian figures, Christian pastors, preachers that owned slaves and said, this is acceptable, Mm -hmm. this is okay, this is normal. It would be easy for people back then, maybe who thought slavery was wrong, to just kind of take this like, oh, I don't need to do anything. I don't need to stand against that. I don't need to join the abolitionist movement. I, I, I'll just pray for the slave owners that God would change their heart. You know, I, I feel like there might be some who hear this wisdom where you motif and they think that's what we're saying, like that the answer is just to do nothing. But I look at the example of like the abolitionist Christian movement that like boldly preached against evil and used their words to try to compel their fellow countrymen, you know, to turn away from sin. And and personally, and this is just my my thing, but I wish that we didn't have a civil war. I wish that the way that the slaves ended up being freed was through the power of the gospel and revival spreading, compelling people to repent from their sin. You know what I mean? So that that's kind of mm-hmm. where I'm coming from with it. And I'm looking at today's situations and it's like, I don't want to see us progress to the point where we think <clears throat> the only way to solve this problem is through war. I want to see 
wisdom warriors from the body of Christ raised up in all of our churches to say, let's combat the culture by like using wisdom from the Lord to change hearts and minds, you know, and that that's, that's through both like helping people come to faith in Christ. And then also through just reasoning with people in a way that compels them to, to see truth. You know, I, I don't know if that's making any sense, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, my mind's spinning with all the stuff. I mean, to your Sorry, point, I'm the king just, of like the huge loaded, no. like long questions. So I'm, I, I apologize for that. It's good. I mean, it's just, it's, it's grieving to think like slave owners would even look at Abraham and find justification for their sin by like, well, he had slaves and but he's in Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, you know, it's like, Hmm. No, you're totally missing the Imago Day. Like you're totally missing that humans reflect God's image. Hmm. And we see this abuse, I mean, really early as early as Genesis. And and I'm con- I'm I'm faced with it even today, not with obviously I think it's fair to say we're not like actively endorsing slavery or anything, but it's like anytime I look at humans as a means to an end, I am being oppressive. Yeah. Like think of Abram, Sarai and Hagar. She was a means for them to like get this promise, good thing from God, but it was not what God intended. And it was a totally bad, unjust, horrific ordeal. Yeah. And we see Mm. the angel of the Lord, whether you want to say it's a theophany or Christophany, like we see God actually going to this Egyptian maidservant and saying like, Hey, I see you. Yeah. Like I see you in the desert. I see you. It gives like a promise to her. And I think it's an early example of like God seeing the oppressed. And so I think, man, if we could navigate and wield the weapon of wisdom, like the words of our mouth and just call people to this, like seeing God, like when he comes down, I think of a couple times in Genesis, even he comes down the tower of Babel. They're building these Babylonian ziggurats to the sky and we know now that the Babylonians would boast about all the surrounding towns and villages that they would enslave to build these things. And God comes down like, cause he's like, it's injustice. It's oppression. I just preached yesterday on Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, (laughs) which is Mm. crazy. And I've, I've always heard that preached as like, Oh my gosh, you know, the sin of homosexuality. Ah, but no, I've never heard anyone actually talk about that. How, Sodom and Gomorrah were inhospitable to sojourners, aliens, and travelers. Yeah. Like God came down like he did in Babel because he cares about like these marginalized people who can't find refuge in a city and have to worry about getting sexually mistreated. In that yeah. instance, it's two angels like potentially right. being sexually mistreated. And so I don't know. I think there's there's a lot to recapture even when it comes to these stories in the Bible and how we've, at least in my limited experience, how I've always heard them. But I don't know if that makes any sense, but I'm... No, it does. Yeah, it does. I mean, to me, the reframing of the story of Sodom and Gomorrah does not negate what the scripture says about the historic Christian sex ethic in my mind, but it does reveal how often sometimes we miss some things because we're so focused on other things. And it's like... Do we take inhospitality to be serious? Like, do we understand this is something that is, this is something serious to the heart of God 
he wants his people to be hospitable. He, he wants his people to be welcoming. He wants his people to care about the marginalized and the oppressed. And he wants his people to, you know, hold to his standard of sexual ethics. So, mm-hmm. yeah, no, that, that's that's good. Let me try to make this as practical as possible. Can can I ask you? Can I can I throw at you some hypothetical scenarios? Where basically, okay, this is for anybody listening who is like, I get what you guys are throwing down. I want to be a wisdom warrior. Let's talk about like combat training, if that makes sense. Can I can I throw yeah. some scenarios, some battle scenarios at you, and ask you, how would you handle this as someone trying his best to be a wisdom warrior, following in the way of Jesus? I think most practically and something that I think we as Christians overlook is the idea of like Matthew 18, for example, like when we have conflict with our, our brothers and sisters, go to them and seek peace, seek shalom. Like, I mean, seek unity. And I always encourage, you know, people in my sphere, like take the high road, always be the first to apologize, be the first to own something and so you're wielding the weapon of your mouth and you're wielding the weapon of wisdom and bringing peace even in the closest relationships to you and I think there's a lot can be said about the church in unity rather than division yeah yeah that's good can can I throw like a specific hypothetical at you yeah okay so picture this picture a Christian friend comes to you so this is somebody that you you know you're friends with you're both brothers in Christ but he is just enraged about something going on in the culture, you know, the sin and the evil in the world. He's been watching the evening news and has become furious about the sinful activity that secular people are engaged in. And he hates seeing how their sin is hurting the world and the culture. So he tells you, you know, I wish God would just destroy these sinners like Sodom and Gomorrah style. How does the wisdom warrior engage in that kind of conversation? Oh man, that's heavy. Yeah. You just went right to the throat with that one. Um, <laughs> it's very yeah, I mean, relatable, I think, I think. Yeah. I think my, my, I guess my caution is like, obviously with the news, you have different narratives being presented and just to be mindful of that and also being mindful of the consumption of how much news we're watching. I don't want to live in a sheltered bubble where I'm not seeing injustice that's happening and just sin that's wreaking havoc in other parts of the world. But just being mindful, like, man, if I'm really wanting to bring the kingdom of God, I want to look to Jesus. I want to look to his word. I need to be saturated and meditate on God's word. So that would probably be my first thing. Second, I don't know if I could be prescriptive as like, hey, man, here's some steps that you should do. You should protest or you should organize a protest or you should write the senator or you should (laughs) do these things. I think as people living by the spirit we're guided by the spirit and so i would yeah. i would encourage him if he's thinking in any of those directions to to pray fully yeah i mean if he's one he's your comment was like he's wanting to destroy <laughs> let's destroy portland like man if it wasn't for the food carts i would just want to burn the place down um, I've, I've literally had this conversation with a friend about portland specifically where it was just my my friend was just 
praying imprecatory prayers of God's wrath against the city of Portland. So yeah, no, that's so funny that you bring up specifically Portland there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just think we don't see that in the Bible. I mean, we see God actually going to those people. And yeah. classic example, Jonah and Nineveh. I mean, why don't you nerd out on how stinking wicked Nineveh yep. was? I don't blame Jonah for not wanting to go to Nineveh because it's it's super scary, some of the stuff that they were doing. Yes. Um, but God is always moving to those people, giving them a chance, like giving them yes. an invitation of hope. So I think... My encouragement, I don't know how that flushes out for him in the situation, but man, as we look at the Bible, it's like God is moving to those people, moving into the neighborhood and offering hope. Right. Yeah. I think the thing that comes to my mind practically through it is you're talking about wisdom warrior, the concept of the wisdom warrior and the wisdom warrior recognizes what is the battle? The battle is the cosmic ancient battle for, for souls between Yahweh and the chaos monster. And who are, who is the enemy? Is it the people in Portland? No, it's the dark forces behind some yeah. of the people. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's the demonic forces that have enslaved some of these people into dark, destructive ideologies. And so for me, like to be a wisdom warrior in that scenario means I'm looking at my friend who's just charging in anger and I'm doing the judo move on them where I'm trying to take that anger and frame it for them where it's like, yes, it's, it is righteous to be anger, angry towards sin, but it is not righteous for us to have a heart of wrath towards sinners. So I'm trying to subdue my friend with the judo flip, you know, and put them back under the authority of God that says, look at all of the scripture that says that God wishes that no one would perish and that God mm-hmm. uh, is pointing us, the church, to be lights to the darkness and how we should pray for our enemies and how, you know, God, maybe God wants to use you to pray for the people in Portland or even go to Portland as a missionary, you know, and, and, yeah. and live there, uh, you know, which I, I admire so much. Uh, some of my favorite pastors are theologically conservative pastors who have gone to a progressive environments like Portland and have yeah. become not compromised by the culture, but they've tried to be wisdom warriors within the culture, you know, pointing the culture back to Christ. So, um, yeah. yeah, Western seminary plug. I mean, it's a, it's, I think the only conservative Mm. seminary theologically that is in an urban like core, like Portland. God bless them for what they're doing. It's incredible. Here's another scenario for you. This is kind of on the other side of the spectrum. I don't know if I even answered your previous scenario, but (laughs) I responded. (laughs) Yeah, I I thought it was good. Okay, so this is on the other side of the spectrum. So a friend of yours who is not a Christian takes to social media to attack and vent their anger and frustration at Christians. So they, they claim that Christians are sexist, racist, homophobic. They talk about how they were wounded by a pastor or a Christian. They accuse anyone who is involved in Christianity to be a part of an oppressive, systemic, corrupt power structure and contributing to the spread of hatred in the world. How does the Mm. wisdom warrior engage in that kind of scenario? Yeah, I think, man, I don't, I I think the wisdom warrior, one, that person's not prescribing to biblical truth. So I can't Mm. engage them with, hey man, well, the Bible actually says more than likely they're, they're not going to change their mind because you say the Bible says or show them a different interpretation <laughs> right. on scripture. I would actually like a, like a ninja. I would prefer to like <laughs> befriend them and them not know I'm a Christian. 
and then and this reveals how I view discipleship. Some people say, hey, discipleship doesn't start until they're a Christian, you know, until mm-hmm. they've, you know, prayed the prayer. I actually think discipleship starts as soon as I learn someone's name. You've like, mm-hmm. unbeknownst to you, become part of my discipleship process. Where now every <laughs> I interaction that. that I have with you, I'm trying to move you with like the love and grace and mercy of God. I'm moving you closer to Jesus. Like whether that's, tipping my barista at Starbucks or for this individual, like sharing a meal and listening to them and validating them and saying, Mm. man, like that, that's, it's so sad, but maybe saying, Hey, like, yeah, this aspect's true, but, but here's like an alternative, but maybe not getting to that conversation right away or being okay, not letting that drive your relationship other than like, this is someone who again, reflects God's image who I'm called to love and care for and, share a meal with and so i'd i'd be much more interested just being their friend and getting to know them maybe they just need a positive interaction with a christian maybe they they saw that dude who had like a sign on the corner or something that was like i don't know the lgbt plus community going to hell or something or i don't know And, and, and that's their view and unfortunately that's sad and that's a reality but that's not the case for all christians you know i don't go to a restaurant and have a bad experience at a restaurant and say, you know what, dude, all restaurants are bad. No, like I'll probably (laughs) eat a second time there. I'll give any place a second, you know, any food place a second try. But I I know that there's good restaurants out there. And so I think I'd hope to be a good restaurant that that person would taste and see that God's good through their interactions with me. Yeah, fully, fully agree with that. I think that's, that's fantastic. And, and, And that's something I get into in some of the material that we've made here on the show about that idea of like the way of the peacemaker. It totally fits into all this stuff we're talking about with the, the wisdom warrior. In, in my experience, what I've noticed is a lot of times when this happens in social media spaces, there is the temptation for all of us who are Christians and especially guys who study theology to slip into like Theo bro mode, you know, the, <laughs> the Theo brogen, yep. you know, and it's, it's usually us bearded guys, you know, who like to study the Bible and we get on social media and we just, yep. we, we look at, you know, a secularist ripping into Christianity and we go into defense mode where it's like, well, I've got to prove to them why they're wrong. And here's actually why, you know, here's a list of the 20 different amazing good things that Christians have done in culture. Did you know Christians started most of the hospitals? Well, they did. You're wrong, you secularist, you know, go back to your hole. And, And really like that is so opposite, I think, of the heart of God because like when we're doing that, we're viewing people as the enemy instead of people as victims of the true enemy. So the approach I try to take is when I see someone, you know, a friend of mine who is not a Christian and they're just blasting Christianity on social media, I'm thinking like, who, who is my heart for? Is it for my fellow Christians who might get offended? It's like, guys, we know what we believe is true. Like you don't need me to get in there and defend Jesus for you because you already have your defense. You already know what you believe, but this person, they need Christ. So what if I send them a direct message and I just say, Hey, can we talk about that stuff that you said? And like, I I can relate to them and I can be like, Hey, like, you know, man, I'm so sorry you were wounded by a pastor in your church. That's terrible. Like that's not actually how Christianity is supposed to be. And this is what Jesus says about how leaders are supposed to love and lead. And your pastor didn't do that. I'm sorry that they failed you. I can talk about ways. I can, I can be intellectually honest about ways that Christians, not, not Christianity itself, but Christians with wrong interpretations of scripture 
acted in the past in ways that were racist or sexist or homophobic. Like I can, I can address all that stuff and then hear their side of the story and then point them back to Jesus, who is actually the one that overthrows sexism, the one that overthrows racism and the one that actually like, while he holds a sexual ethic that says sexual relationships is between one man and one woman, he bends over backwards to reach those who struggle with sexuality and broken sexuality. Mm -hmm. Like, you know what I mean? So it's like, it's just a different way of framing it. And when we try to engage in those public debates, we get into defensive mode and it's all about protecting our tribe. And I don't think Jesus calls us to protect our tribe. He calls us to protect the people that he wants to bring into the tribe. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Well, I think of Peter trying to like protect the tribe, like, no, 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 cuts the guard's ear off. <laughs> Jesus is like, no, 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 this is much bigger than like what you're seeing. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like we, man, that's something I, I wrote an article about that, that, that concept where when we go into our keyboard warrior mode and we try to defend Jesus against the evil secularists, a lot of times we are chopping off people's ears and they need those ears because they, they need to hear what God is saying to them, but they can't hear mm -hmm. because we've literally made them deaf through our mm. anger and through yeah, our rage and, you know, through our defensiveness. And so I'm, I'm praying in my life that Jesus would heal the ears of people that maybe I wounded, you know, so that they could be open to hear what he has to say. I think just, you know, to, to wrap it up, like how have you applied this to your own life where it's not just something that you wrote a paper on? Cause that's something that we're all, we can all be guilty of as pastors, yeah. as seminarians. It's like, we dive into these topics and we get all obsessed with them and we write our papers or our sermons and then we kind of move on. How do you work to absorb this into your life so that you are not just someone that studies the wisdom warrior concept, but someone who's like, I want to be a wisdom warrior in my life. Like I want to follow yeah. Jesus's example. How do you cultivate that in your life? Yeah, I think my, my mind's quick to jump to like church and my job, but I think it, I mean, super cliche. I think it starts at home with me and my wife. Like, am I going to embody the way of Jesus by self-sacrificially laying down my life for my wife? Yeah. Am I going to wield the weapon of wisdom in the words that I speak over her? You know, am I going to be harsh or am I going to be gentle and full of grace, truth and love? And that's, that's, been, <laughs> that's been convicting, you know, yes. uh, how am I going to wield the weapon of wisdom with my kids? Um, mm. and I think it's, you know, we're sinful people, so uh, it's not lost on me that I'm going to sin against my wife that I'm going to yeah. sin against my kids, but I'm going to be quick to to seek unity and peace and apologize and, you know, let the words of my, my mouth, like, you know, help me navigate this, you know, their early childhood right now. I have a six year old, one and a half year old and a two month old. Mm. Uh, the two month old can't, you know, he's doesn't even know what day it is or where he's at. <laughs> I don't even know if he knows I'm his dad, maybe, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> he probably, but, does. you know, it's just, being mindful, like I, I'm leading with wisdom in my household. And I think that that spills out into how I, I lead with wisdom and I engage because, you know, we're going to be in conflict. You know, it's like the 
iron sharpens iron. Like that's that's conflict. There's sparks flying. You know, it's inevitable. It's going to happen. Christian circles, non-Christian. Um, but how do I do that? You know? Yeah. Um, mm. And I think it's me. Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. And so mm. when I have a hard time owning up the areas that I suck in my friendships <laughs> or whatever, mm. it's because I'm either arrogant or proud. And I think much mm. of myself. And so to be like Jesus and the way forward is not to think of myself as that much, you know, like, but to think of Christ, you know, and, and what he's done and what he's done for me and then offer that love and that grace and that forgiveness, extend that to myself and then to those around me. That's good, man. Dude, thank you so much for being on the show. I, I really appreciate your heart on all this. And thank you for being a resource to the church at large. Thank you for being willing to to not only write, but present. I was so proud of you when I heard that you were presenting your paper to that, that theological society thing. I was like, that's so cool, man. I, I think that God has you on this path, you know, of, of, of deeper learning, not just for the sake of learning, but because he wants to fill you with things that are going to help the church, you know, through yeah. the rest of your life, man. So I'm excited to just continue to watch what God does through you. And thank you for being such a good friend to me and such an encouragement to me. You're, you're one of those guys uh, just in this season, you know, of, of doing ministry the way I've been doing it. I feel like you've been one of the guys that have been so supportive and encouraging to me. So thanks for that, man. Thank, thank you for being who you yeah. are. And thanks for sharing with us about the Wisdom Warrior, man. Yeah. Thanks for having me on the show. And, and likewise, Aaron, thanks for being a great friend and just occupying this space. I struggle being like, you know, being online and engaging online and stuff. Same. Um, but we need people to do it because that's where people yeah. are at right now. And I'm just thankful that God's raised you up to occupy this space and do it so graciously and with with so much wisdom. I mean, you're you're an online <laughs> wisdom warrior, Aaron. So thank you. <laughs> thanks, man. I appreciate that. All right. Well, thanks everybody for listening. We'll get you on the next one. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Good Lion Podcast. We hope this episode has encouraged and challenged you to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Our goal and heart for the show is to always be pointing you to the God who is not safe, but who is very, very good. If you enjoyed this show, we would so appreciate it if you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. The more reviews we get, the more people are able to find the show. So please leave a review. It helps so much. The Good Line Podcast is produced by myself, Aaron Salvato, and my co-host, Brian Higgins. And we are a part of CGN Media. For more great content, visit cgnmedia.org. For more from Good Lion Ministries, you can also find tons of podcasts, resources, courses, and more at our ministries website, goodlion.org. If you'd like to support the work that we do, please visit goodlion.org support. With your help, we can continue pointing people to Jesus and providing thought-provoking resources for the church. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope this episode helped you on your journey of following Jesus. And until next time, keep your eyes fixed on him.